there, I'm Kathy Cooper. This is Loss and Found, where every loss matters. And through every loss, I believe something can be found. Thank you for tuning in today. I, I know your time is valuable, and the fact that you give me an hour each week is um, it's actually quite humbling. So thank you for tuning in. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. I, I hope you find the hour worthwhile and that you'll uh, start tuning in every week. And um, to everyone listening, please tell your family and friends, uh, coworkers, whoever, about the show. You know, what's great about radio in today's world, um, well, let me tell you, it's the fact that no matter where anyone lives, if they have access to Internet, they can listen to this show. So... It streams live on 1150kknw.com, so spread the word to others, all right, that live outside of the greater Seattle area. I, I know I have listeners in Wisconsin, Maryland, South Carolina, Florida. I've heard from those people. So thank you all for, for listening in those states, and um, thank you here in the greater, greater Seattle area for listening. Um, the streaming works, so let's, let's spread the word, all right? Um, I always welcome any comment question or uh, experiences that anyone would like to share. You know, I'm a big believer of an experience that someone has can always be helpful to someone else. So you can always call the studio line throughout the show at 425-373-5527, 425-373-5527, or email me at lossandfoundseattle at gmail.com. There's, there's many things I, I want to accomplish with this show, and I, I kind of always like to, to revisit this. Um, I like to offer education because I really believe that knowledge is the great normalizer of grief. I, I want to be supportive. I want folks to feel encouraged, and you know, I want you to, to feel that your loss is validated and, and help you see that losses, aside from death, are very important and can be life-changing. However, I, I really want to help normalize change and how it is such a necessary part of life. You know, I, I hope to, to aid you in becoming more comfortable with that process of, of change. I, I hope to aid you in becoming more comfortable in recognizing your losses and, and, and realizing that no loss is too small and it's okay to be affected by something that someone else may not understand. Um, and it's okay to be changed by it. I, I hope to aid you in having more comfortable in speaking about your loss, comfort in embracing your feelings. I hope to aid you in finding your something in your loss. And I hope to do all of that to, um, to some degree every, every week. And by the end of the hour, my hope is that everybody walks away feeling that their spirit was refreshed in some way. And if I can accomplish that and only that, um, I, I really feel like my time has been well spent. As we all know, today is 9-11. And it's uh, a date where I'm pretty sure most of us know uh, what and where what we were doing and, and where we were doing it 18 years ago. I was living in Merrimack, Wisconsin. I remember I was watching ESPN. Um, they were running a replay of how Ed McCaffrey, who played for uh, the Denver Broncos, he was a wide receiver, he had broken his leg in the Monday night football game. So they were replaying that. And my mom called, 
And she asked if I had the news on and said to turn it on because we were being attacked. When I turned on ABC, I, of course, you know, I couldn't couldn't believe my eyes. I, I can still see the images of the tower so very clearly. And, and I remember just sitting on the couch saying over and over again, what is going on? How can this be? Do you remember where you were? Do you remember what you what you were doing? Do you think our country still feels the effects of those attacks as a whole, not just the families and friends and relatives that were affected? Are you still affected by the events that took place on that date? Each year, I try to carve out time to watch a show on the attacks because I don't want to forget. You know, for for some reason, it feels like the least I can do is remember all of the people that died, all who were injured, all who became ill and have died since that day because of the exposure to the dust and the remains. You know, think of all the ones whose lives were so profoundly affected that day. Families and friends of the civilian victims, family, friends of the responders, Anyone in that city that had direct access to that fateful day, they they were changed forever. Their life started down a new path that no one was likely prepared for. Think of all the people that joined the military because of that event and how that changed their lives and their families and their friends. That one day changed the lives of so many you know, not only in this country, but around the whole entire world. And, and I don't want to forget the legacies that were left for those generations that are coming afterwards. I don't want to forget how the first responders ran into buildings that everyone else was trying to leave. I don't want to forget that kind of courage that was displayed, that kind of selflessness that was displayed, that was acted upon. I don't want to forget the civilians who were terrified and doing what they could to leave the towers, yet many of them took the time to help someone that was injured or in a wheelchair leave the building with them. You know, I don't want to forget that kind of compassion, that kind of servant attitude. The individuals on the plane that took over the terrorists, I don't want to forget their love of country their willingness to sacrifice themselves to say to save so many others their willingness to let's roll <clears throat> excuse me knowing those two words meant the end of their lives so the men and women who were tasked to clean up the remains i don't want to forget their fortitude their commitment to ensuring any body part left could be identified so their family could have remains to bury. I don't want to forget the families that had to hear the phone calls from their loved ones, the calls saying, I love you, thank you for being in my life, but I'm not making it out. I don't want to forget the devastation they felt hearing those calls and seeing those towers fall. Yet moving forward in their grief day by day, month by month, year by year to where hopefully 
Everyone has created a happy life without their loved one. I don't want to forget any of that. Legacies were made that day and ones that deserve to be remembered and lived up to. So yeah, I don't want to forget. And hopefully you don't either. Let's take a, a quick break. And if you haven't already given some time to the events that took place on this day, I encourage you to do so in, in whatever way that might feel right for you during this time. I'm Kathy Cooper. This is Lost and Found. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Marilyn Milano. If you love animals, then please check out my new show, Love Has Many Faces, Tuesdays from 9 to 9.30 a.m. right here on Alternative Talk 1150. I'll be talking with rescue groups, animal advocates, and other organizations that help animals, sharing their stories, and giving our listeners some tangible ways in which they can help make a difference. That's Love Has Many Faces, Tuesdays at 9 a.m., right here on Alternative Talk 1150. Raising awareness, touching hearts, and saving animals' lives. What's your story? Have you ever sat with that question and looked to your heart for the answer? It's time to explore the real you. Tune in Thursdays from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. for the brand new show, Story You, with Coach Debbie. Debbie and her guests have a mission to inspire and coach you to find your voice. If you need direction, Story You with Coach Debbie is for you. If you want to be an author, Story You with Coach Debbie is for you. Tune in Thursdays at 4 p.m. and be inspired. Are you ready for something real, raw, upfront, and honest? Then tune in each Wednesday at 2 p.m. right here for Love from the Hip. I am spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and the host, Sakura Sutter. This show is unlike anything you have ever heard and was created to help others to help themselves. Hear me follow up with guests I have hypnotized and see how it has improved their lives. I will also spotlight amazing people from around the world. Their skin tips, live readings, and answers to life's burning questions. Join us each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Alternative Talk 1150, here to uplift your day. Welcome back. I'm Kathy Cooper. This is Lost and Found, where every loss matters, and through every loss, something can be found. I've um, I've decided to continue with uh, the 9/11 salute. Um, I'm gonna I want to share um, some happy happy thoughts about it. I'm not sure how many of you are aware of um, Gander, Newfoundland, New Newfound. How, how do you say that, Eric? You know, New Newfoundland, New. <laughs> Yeah, you're pretty close there. <laughs> close enough. <laughs> Newfoundland. 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 Um, so there is um, a town called Gander, and it is in Newfoundland. And I wanted to, to share uh, a couple a couple little stories, and I am going to be reading them, uh, but I, I, I think it's they're really important, and I think it's, it's a really great way to um, remember the other side of, uh, of 9-11 and what can be found in such tragedy. So... Gander um, is, uh, it is a kind of a, a, a oasis of, of a sort. This town welcomed 6,700 strangers amid terror attacks. They still don't know what all the fuss is about. 16 years ago, the small Canadian town on an island in the North Atlantic Ocean took in nearly 6,700 people, almost doubling its population when the September 11, 2001 terror attacks in New York and Washington forced 38 planes to land there. Their simple hospitality to the unexpected house guests drew worldwide accolades and even inspired a Broadway musical. 
Everyone looks at us and says, that's an amazing thing that you did. And the bottom line is, I don't think it was an amazing thing. I think it was the right thing to do, says Diane Davis, a now-retired teacher who helped 750 people housed at the town's elementary school. In a world today seemingly fraught with division, terrorism, and hate, they do it all over again. Kindness is woven into the very fabric of their nature. They don't know any other way to live. What we consider the most simple thing in life is to help people, says the mayor, Elliot. You're not supposed to look at people's color, their religion, their sexual orientation. You look at them as people. To give you a glimpse of life here, start with this. Many Ganderites don't lock the doors to their homes or cars. Everyone says hello to everyone. People know their neighbors. My love or my dear adorn every other sentence, except the Nufi accent makes the my sound like me. Still, there's a wariness here. Not for the town itself, nor its future, nor the anchor of the civility it represents. Instead, there's a concern for the rest of the world and how they face terrorism. One lady says, I'm scared at the way we're going and what the world will look like in 10 years. We may be set back 100 years if we don't change our ways. But Gary Tuff, who was then the acting manager of Safety and Security for Emergency Response Services at Gander International back at that time, saw the second that the plane hit the World Trade Center, he knew his town of 10,000 people would be impacted. The airport here marks the closest point between Europe and the U.S. and is a preferred emergency landing spot for medical and other emergencies. The 38 planes that landed came fast and furious into the airport. After figuring out how to park all the planes, some of which later started sinking into the pavement because of their weight and the warm temperatures, officials spent the next 24 hours unloading luggage and people. Passengers faced intense scrutiny as they passed through customs. Everybody was a suspect, said the Red Cross manager, but everyone was a guest, too. Beyond the basics of food and water, some passengers on board needed medicine, Many left prescriptions in checked, inaccessible luggage. Pharmacists in town worked around the clock calling dozens of countries to fill prescriptions. Then there were the smokers on board, unable to get a fix for hours. We bought every bit of nicotine gum that was in town. To say this town of 10,000 people and its surrounding communities welcomed the passengers and crew from early from nearly 100 countries with open arms is an understatement. The town all but shut down for the plain people, inspiring the Tony Award-winning Broadway musical Come From Away. We did not know how we would be affected, if these people were staying, if the people who were coming were good people or not so good people. We just knew that we had to make room for them and take care of them. They were here and they needed help. As the plane, still packed with passengers, sat for hours at the airport, the town bustled with activity. Volunteers readied makeshift shelters. Every school, gym, community center, church, and camp, any place that could fit a plane load of people. Gander's 500 hotel rooms were reserved for pilots and flight crews. Bus drivers in the middle of a nasty strike laid down picket signs. Donations of toiletries, clothes, toys, towels, toothbrushes, pillows, blankets, and bedding piled up. 
For security reasons, passengers weren't allowed to take checked bags. Gander residents began cooking a lot. Grocery store shelves went bare. The Walmart ran out of nearly everything. Underwear was particularly a hot commodity. And the local, that's what it said, that's not what I'm saying, and the local hockey rink transformed into the world's largest refrigerator. It was like Casserole City. Stuck on planes for up to 31 hours since taking off from Europe, and in the age before smartphones and social media, many passengers didn't know exactly what caused their diversion to this tiny Canadian province. Those who did still couldn't fathom the terror attacks in the U.S. without seeing them. When passengers finally saw the destruction, a police officer from Gander still remembers their reaction and says, looking at their faces will haunt me the rest of my life. The outpouring of kindness in the town only multiplied over the next five days. Gander residents took passenger sightseeing, moose hunting, berry picking, and barbecuing. They entertained with music, stopped anyone walking down the street in case they wanted a ride, and brought strangers into their homes for showers or even as guests for a few nights. They refused to accept money, though passengers later donated thousands to the town. They couldn't comprehend what we were doing. The way they looked at you, they almost wanted to touch you to make sure you were real. A couple people from the flight said that whole community is the poster child for how hospitality and just a sheer act of humanity should be because they had such a high level of open arms and come in and welcome and here's my house. It just absolutely floored me. The come from aways were from Israel, Austria, Spain, Poland, France, the Philippines, Iran, Italy, England, Germany, Thailand, Belgium, Ukraine, Africa, Hungary, Uganda, Senegal, Russia, United Arab, Amitris, and just about every state in the U.S. The come from a ways, as Newfoundlanders call anyone not from the island, were from all over the world, and despite the intense situation, no one in Gander batted an eye. Prejudice against anyone is an entirely foreign concept. I'm going to read something, um, a letter. This is an actual account from a Delta flight crew member. He wrote to someone, um, wrote this letter to someone that worked for Air Canada and wanted her to know what her country did for all of the people on his flight. We were about five hours out of Frankfurt, flying over the North Atlantic, and I was in my crew rest seat, taking my scheduled rest break. All of a sudden, the curtains parted violently, and I was told to go to the cockpit right now. I needed to see the captain. As soon as I got there, I noticed the crew had one of those all-business looks on their faces. The captain handed me a printed message. I quickly read the message and realized the importance of it. The message was from Atlanta. It addressed our flight and simply said, all airways over the continental U.S. are closed. Land ASAP at the nearest airport. Advise your destination. Now, when a dispatcher tells you to land immediately without suggesting which airport, one can assume that the dispatcher has reluctantly given up control of the flight to the captain. 
We knew it was a serious situation, and we needed to find terra firma quickly. It was quickly decided that the nearest airport was 400 miles away behind our right shoulder in Gander on the island of Newfoundland. A quick request was made to the Canadian traffic controller and a right turn directly to Gander was immediately approved. We found out later why there was no hesitation by the Canadian controller approving our request. We, the in-flight crew, were told to get the airplane ready for an immediate landing. While this was going on, Another message arrived from Atlanta telling us some terrorist activity in the New York area. We briefed the in-flight crew about going to Gander, and we went about our business, closing down the airplane for a landing. A few minutes later, I went back to the cockpit to find out that some airplanes had been hijacked and were being flown into buildings all over the U.S. We decided to make an announcement and lie to the passengers for the time being. We told them that an instrument problem had arisen on the airplane and that we needed to land at Gander to have it checked. We promised to give more information after landing in Gander. There were many unhappy passengers, but that is par for the course. We landed in Gander about 40 minutes after the start of this episode. There were already 20 other planes on the ground from all over the world. After we parked on the ramp, the captain made the following announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, you must be wondering if all of these airplanes around us have the same instrument problem as we have. <laughs> but the reality is, we are here for a good reason. Then he went on to explain the little bit we knew about the situation in the U.S. There were loud gasps and stares of disbelief. Local time at Gander was 12.30 p.m. Gander Control told us to stay put. No one was allowed to get off the aircraft. No one on the ground was allowed to come near the aircrafts. Only a car from the airport police would come around once in a while, look us over, and go on to the next airplane. In the next hour or so, all the airways over the North Atlantic were vacated, and Gander alone ended up with 53 airplanes from all over the world, out of which 27 were flying U.S. flags, although I do believe that was 38 airplanes. We were told that each and every plane was to be offloaded one at a time with the foreign carriers given the priority. We were number 14 in the U.S. category. We were further told that we would be given a tentative time to deplane at 6 p.m. Meanwhile, they got there at 12.30, people. Meanwhile, bits of news started to come in over the aircraft radio, and for the first time we learned that airplanes were flown into the World Trade Center in New York and into the Pentagon. People were trying to use their cell phones but were unable to connect due to a different cell system in Canada. Some people did get through but were only able to get to the Canadian operator who would tell them that the lines to the U.S. were either blocked or jammed and to try again. Sometime late in the evening, the news filtered to us that the World Trade Center buildings had collapsed and that a fourth hijacking had resulted in a crash. Now the pa passengers were totally bewildered and emotionally exhausted, but stayed calm as we kept reminding them to look around to see that we were not the only ones in this predicament. There were other planes with people on them in the same situation. We also told them that the Canadian government was in charge and we were at their mercy. True to their word, at 6 p.m., Gander Airport told us that our turn time to deplane would come at 11 a.m. the next morning, almost 24 hours later. That took the last wind out of the passengers and they simply resigned and accepted this news without much noise and really started to get into a mode of spending the night on the airplane. 
Gander had promised us any and all medical attention if needed, medicine, water, and lavatory servicing, and they were true to their word. Fortunately, we had no medical situation during the night. We did have a young lady who was 33 weeks into her pregnancy, and we took really good care of her. The night passed without any further complications on our airplane, despite the uncomfortable sleeping arrangements. About 10.30, on the morning of the 12th, we were told to get ready to leave the aircraft. A convoy of school buses showed up at the side of the airplane. The stairway was hooked up and the passengers were taken to the terminal for processing. We, the crew, were taken to the same terminal, but were told to go to a different section where we were processed through immigration and customs and then had to register with the Red Cross. After that, we were isolated from our passengers and were taken in a caravan of vans to a small hotel in the town of Gander. We had no idea where our passengers were going. The town of Gander has a population of 10,400 people. Red Cross told us that they were going to process about 10,500 passengers from all the planes that were forced into Gander. We were told to just relax at the hotel and wait for a call to go back to the airport, but not to expect that call for a while. We found out the total scope of the terror back home only after getting to our hotel and turning on the TV, 24 hours after it all started. Meanwhile, we enjoyed ourselves going around town, discovering things and enjoying the hospitality. The people were so friendly, and they just knew that we were the plain people. We all had a great time until we got that call two days later on the 14th at 7 a.m., we made it to the airport by 8.30 a.m. and left for Atlanta at 12.30 p.m., arriving in Atlanta at 4.30. But that's not what I wanted to tell you. What passengers told us was so uplifting and incredible, and the timing couldn't have been better. We found out that Gander and the surrounding small communities within a 75-kilometer radius had closed all high schools, meeting halls, lodges, and any other large gathering places they converted all of these facilities to a mass lodging area. Some had cots set up. Some had mats with sleeping bags and pillows set up. All of the high school students had to volunteer, taking care of what they were calling our guests. Our 218 passengers ended up in a town called Lewisport, about 45 kilometers from Gander. They were put in a high school. If any women wanted to be in a women-only facility, that was arranged. Families were kept together. All the elderly passengers were given no choice and taken to private homes. Remember that young pregnant lady? She was put up in a private home right across from a 24-hour urgent care facility. All doctors and nurses, both male and female, were available and stayed with the crowd for the duration of the time. Phone calls and emails to U.S. and Europe were available for everyone once a day. During the days... The passengers were given a choice of excursion trips. Some people went on boat cruises of lakes and harbors. Some went to the local forests. Local bakeries stayed open to make fresh bread for the guests. Food was prepared by the residents and brought to the school for those who elected to stay put. Others were driven to the eatery of their choice and fed. They were given tokens to go to the local laundromat to wash their clothes since their luggage was still on the aircraft. In other words, Every single need was met for those unfortunate travelers. Passengers were crying while telling us while telling us the stories. After all that, they were delivered to the airport right on time and without a single one missing or being late. All because the local Red Cross and all had all the information about the goings on back at Gander and knew which group needed to leave for the airport at what time. 
absolutely incredible. While passengers came on board, it was like they had been on a cruise. Everybody knew everybody else by their name. They were swapping stories of their stay, impressing each other with who had the better time. It was mind-boggling. Our flight back to Atlanta looked like a party flight. We simply stayed out of their way. The passengers had totally bonded, and they were calling each other by their first names, exchanging phone numbers, addresses, and email addresses. And then a strange thing happened. One of our business class passengers approached me and asked if he could speak over the PA to his fellow passengers. We never, never allow that, but something told me to allow this to happen. I said, of course. The gentleman picked up the PA and reminded everyone about what they had just gone through in the last days. He reminded them of the hospitality they had received at the hands of total strangers. He further stated that he would like to do something in return for the good folks of the town of Lewisport. He said he was going to set up a trust fund under the name of Delta 15, which was their flight number. The purpose of the trust fund was to provide a scholarship for high school students of Lewisport to help them go to college. He asked for donations of any amount from his fellow travelers. When the paper with donations got back to us with amounts, names, phone numbers, and addresses, it totaled $14,500, or about 20000 Canadian. The gentleman who started all of this turned out to be an MD from Virginia. He promised to match the donations and to start the administrative work on the scholarship. He also said that he would forward this proposal to Delta and ask them to donate as well. Why all of this? Just because some people in faraway places were kind to some strangers who happened to literally drop in among them. I find that so incredibly powerful, so incredibly amazing that this event took place and here you have the other side of tragedy. You know, what did all of these thousands of people find in the midst of all of that chaos, being trapped on planes for hours, um, up to 31, 35 hours on an airplane, not knowing what was going on? When they first landed in Gander, they weren't giving the complete information, everybody on these planes, of what was happening, being in the dark about all this, being a bus coming up, taking you, you know, having to get on a bus, going to... Um, through the airport terminal, not knowing where you were going, not knowing what was going on. That had to be absolutely terrifying. And these people of Gander stepped up in a way that really is is unbelievable. And I think I, I really wanted to share that because it really shows the other side of of what goes on. It's the other side, what can be found in tragedy. You know, they likely found love, acceptance. They found friendship, obviously, They probably found safety. You know, they learned lessons about true hospitality. But I think most of all, I think most of all, they found humanity. The people of Gander showed them a way that we're meant to be. You know, the people of Gander showed them a way to be. And perhaps some left that time there with a new way of being. And that's a precious thing to find. Maybe, maybe that's another reason I don't want to forget the events of 9-11. You know, I want to be reminded of our humanity. All right. 
thanks for taking the uh, time and, and sharing with me to to honor um, this 9-11. There is uh, a documentary that is out now about Gander, and I'm not sure if it's on tonight. Um, do do a Googling. I, I apologize. I started looking that up before I went on and then um, didn't get a chance to finish that, but there is a documentary, and if you've never seen the Broadway play, um, Come Far Away, that is a really, really good play, very entertaining, very powerful. Um, it really is based upon... Uh, true events and obviously, but also a lot of the characters are based upon true people that experienced it. And it uh, talks about uh, African-American people, how they felt being there. Folks, um, their gay couple is uh, talked about and how they felt being there. Um, There are Muslims and how they felt being there. And it is um, an amazing play. And it just brings together all of the stories of how, Gander folks were responding to them and treating them, and they felt not different. For the first time in their life, they felt not different, and that's a very powerful thing and gift to give someone. Okay, so, um, you know, last week during uh, the show, my potpourri show as I called it, I was going along my merry way, and had so much to talk about that time just kind of slipped away. So I wanted to touch again on uh, a part of, uh, of grieving that I think is, is really important. And it's how you can recognize you're making a shift in your grieving process. Now, sometimes when we have lived with uh, the pain of our grief for a period of time, it, it's really hard to let go of that it's hard to see the the symptoms of our grief leave because they kind of become like our friends, you know? We know that every waking moment we will feel empty. I can depend upon feeling sad. I can depend upon feeling hurt, feeling that pain. And that in itself is somewhat comforting because, well, we can depend upon it. Because, you know, the world you live in has been turned upside down, uh, but at least you know what to expect each day. You know how you're going to feel, and there's comfort in that. When there is so much in one's life that you don't know, you know, or perhaps understand any longer, it is really nice to wake up to something that is still the same. You wake up, you open your eyes, and it hits you in the face. The loss and all of the emotions that come along with it. So it is somehow (laughs) comfortably uncomfortable. And I used to tell my clients that I would say, you know, you got to get used to being comfortable. Um, You got to get used to to become comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. And I don't know if any of you have experienced that or or know what I mean. So when the symptoms lessen or or leave, um, at times it can be subtle And at times it can just be very uh, sudden and very blatant. I've experienced it both ways. The the people I've worked with have experienced it both ways. And I haven't been able to pinpoint a type of loss as to if it's going to be a gradual awakening or a sudden one where you wake up one morning or there's a particular time of the day and you just say, wow, I suddenly feel different. And I, I use the phrase, the, the word different. I don't u- like to use the phrase, uh, you feel yourself again. That's 
not really, I think, how it takes place because you really don't know what feeling like yourself feels like any longer. So, you know, parts of you may may come back. However, in the beginning, it's likely um, a, wow, I feel normal again. You're probably not going to say that. So how do you recognize a shift in your grief? That, you know what, I think I'm making movement type of shift. Or perhaps you might say, um, recognizing that I'm healing. Maybe you will recognize yourself in some of these scenarios. It's getting closer to bed, um, and you actually find yourself yawning and feeling tired or, or sleepy. You may actually think to yourself, you know what, I don't need that sleeping aid tonight. And I want to do a sidebar on that. It is not uncommon, especially in the acute grief stage, which is that raw emotion time, you know, when you have all of these physical and emotional and mental symptoms go on. You know, depending upon the attachment of the loss, this stage, if you will, it can last from a few days to to several months. And if it's lasting several months, your body needs rest. So I really recommend speaking with your physician about uh, difficulty in sleeping if you're struggling with that, because sometimes individuals do need a sleeping aid to get them through this time. It uh, doesn't mean you won't still awaken between that 1 and 4 a.m. period. That just seems to be the, the time frame for grievers. But at least you would have um, gotten a few hours, maybe three, four hours of uninterrupted sleep prior to that awakening. And sometimes you're able to fall back asleep after you wake up. So talk to your physician if it's been a while and you still aren't getting sleep. It's really okay to have some help at that time. And it's really better than using alcohol, which by the way, really doesn't give you a restful sleep. So Uh, A lot of folks need that, and it's really okay if you need some support in that area. Now, the awakening between one and four phenomenon, I don't know. I don't know exactly why this happens. It almost uh, seems to be an unwritten grief rule. So, you know, a sign that you are perhaps moving forward is maybe you um, no longer awaken during that time. I remember after my mom died, I was awakening either 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. every morning. And I clearly remember the morning my alarm woke me up. I I knew that was a shift in my grieving process. Now, when grieving, sometimes we have to pull ourselves out of bed, right? Not only have we likely not slept, which makes us exhausted, you know, facing the world only reminds us of what has changed, what we've lost. Thus, we just want to stay in bed and cover our heads. However, because we do have responsibilities to take care of, we have work in our families, we have work, you know, we force ourselves to get up and and get going. And so perhaps a sign that you have shifted is maybe you wake up and suddenly realize you got out of bed right away and didn't think twice about it. That is a shift in grieving. That's a sign. You may uh, find you're able to drive somewhere without crying the entire way or having the stoplight tears, which is what I call it when you stop at a red light and you suddenly stop, start crying. For those of you who have experienced that phenomenon, you know what I mean, right? Either way, you find that you reach your destination and realize, you know what, I didn't cry the entire way. That is a shift. That's a sign of healing. Another one along the lines of driving, 
once you're situated in your vehicle and you leave home, you actually remember where you're wanting to go. Yes, because we know a symptom of grief because of the foggy brain. It is not uncommon for folks to get into their vehicle, begin driving, and really just not remember why they are driving in the first place or um, remember where they were going. So, and those two situations can really make uh, a person feel like they're going crazy, and um, often uh, they do. I was, I was working with a, a daughter whose father had died, and her parents had been married, um, I don't know, 50-some years or so. And one day during our session, she asked if she could take a, a moment to speak to me uh, about a concern she had of her mom. So I was like, you know, of course. So she began telling me how mom was always so sharp in her mind, and now she thinks that something's happened to her. She said that within the last weeks prior to dad dying and in the, the past couple months since dad had died, her mom has just become extremely forgetful and almost at times as if she's disoriented. And then she gave me some examples of mom's misplaced items. She's forgotten to pick up the grandkids. And on one occasion, she went to the store and couldn't remember why she was there. So she had to call her daughter to ask her why she got went to the store. So her daughter actually said the words, I think my dad's death has made my mom go crazy. Of course, you know, I, I encouraged her um, to take mom to see her physician. However, I suspected that um, because this was unlike mom and the fact that mom and dad were married for 50 some years, you know, perhaps this was a manifestation of her grief, but you know, always need to see a doctor. Well, she did go see her physician and it turns out the MD thought the same thing. It, It was her grief. So mom came in for a few sessions where basically she just really needed me to educate her on the grief process and normalize what she was going through. And once she realized she wasn't losing her mind, which were her words, not mine, she was able to, to focus on her grief and begin processing it. And that was helpful because instead of focusing on the fear that her mind was going, she was able to focus on the loss that she experienced. Now for her, you know, the release, relief of those symptoms, they're going to very clearly tell her she's shifting in her grieving. So if you feel as if you're going crazy, um, that's normal when we're grieving, especially in the acute phase. Um, just know that as that starts to subside and, it, and the symptoms begin to lessen, that means you are uh, moving through your grief. Being able to enjoy time alone or even be alone for a while can be a significant sign that a shift has occurred. You know, prior to this being alone, it, it seems to have a, a resounding silence of loneliness, if you will. You know, being alone leaves us with our thoughts and feelings, and that reminds us of what we've lost. Being alone um, can also feel fearful, anxiety-producing because of that silence and loneliness feeling. And that's why many people, after a significant loss, They don't want to be alone. They may not say that. So you, as a supporting person to them, you know, really ask the question, do you want to be alone? Would you like me to stay with you? Would you like to to stay with me tonight? Keep that in your back pocket, supporters of grieving people, all right? Because um, oftentimes folks will need that type of support. So a shift in your grief occurs The day you return home before anyone else is there and you suddenly notice that maybe you were humming. 
Or you notice that you turned on the TV, sat down to watch a show like you used to. Or you turned on music because you wanted to listen to it, not drown out the silence. Perhaps you pick up your mail and actually look at it and not just toss it aside. That's a shift. That's a sign of healing. Speaking of TV and music, if you find yourself watching a show and following the plot, listening to music and really hearing it because you're singing along, or perhaps you pick up a book and recognize you're actually remembering what you're reading, those are signs of a shift because now you're able to concentrate and focus. Though, you know, two things that often go away when we're grieving, right? So binge on a show, blast some favorite music, sing at the top of your lungs. You know, spend the day reading that book because you have earned it. You deserve it. You are healing. Laughing. Your laughter comes back. Not that polite smile or chuckle that you've been forcing all of these past months, but a real, I agree, that is funny type of laugh. A laugh that you can feel in your heart, a laugh that warms your heart a laugh you feel in your belly. You know, perhaps you're talking with coworkers or a friend or your child tells you something they think is funny or you're watching a comedy on TV and you suddenly find yourself really laughing. You may also find yourself over laughing because it feels so good to be laughing and you may find that you don't want to stop laughing for a few minutes because you haven't laughed in so long and it feels so good to be laughing. That is a shift. That is a sign, one that feels really good, by the way. Perhaps you go to your calendar and you put in a few activities you want to do in the next month or so. Maybe there's a concert you and a friend will go see, perhaps an art show or maybe an art fair. Maybe there's tickets that you bought for a ball game of some sort, something that you enjoy, and suddenly you realize what you just did. You just plan to do something in the future. Not only did you plan it, but you wrote it down. No longer is it get through this moment, you know, that turns into get through the day. You now just skipped to the future. You went from I can barely get through this day to I want to do Name that, what you want to do, in the future. And that is a huge sign that a shift has occurred. A huge sign that you're healing. How about looking forward to the holidays and special days again? No longer dreading them and spending energy thinking about how to get through them or how to get out of them. No longer wishing that they would never come. No longer feeling guilty for wishing that they would never come. No longer putting on a smile for everyone, pretending that you're okay with participating when reality is you want to scream and run out the door. No longer pretending that all the talking to each other that everyone is doing is making you feel like you're crawling out of your skin because it sounds so loud. Nope. Now you're making plans. Now you're excited to decorate. Now you're excited to cook. Now you're excited for that football game on Thanksgiving Day or that basketball game on Christmas Day, that anniversary. You're excited 
that you'll have several people around and can't wait to hear the home filled with the voices of everyone. Now that work party that you will attend alone or maybe with a friend, that feels okay. Now attending that church service doesn't make you cry or perhaps you cry less. Now celebrating that birthday is fun, even though someone important is missing. Or maybe you're not excited for all of these things. Not excited for all of the traditions and happenings for each holiday or special day. Maybe you just aren't dreading them. And that's okay. That is a shift. That is a sign of healing. Lack of dread or pure excitement doesn't matter to me. Both are signs. Perhaps you find that now you're accepting things as to how they are versus trying to return to how they were. You know, you wake up one day, you look around in your life, you see the changes and say, this is my life now. First of all, acknowledging that, that shows a shift in your grief. That in itself is a sign. Acknowledging that change has occurred It's a shift because prior to that, you were really focused on getting everything back to how it was before. In grief, we spend a lot of time focusing on what was and how we want that back. So when you see what is, that's a sign of healing. Identifying exactly how your life is now and all the things that have changed, that is huge. You are no longer running toward the past when you are able to look around and say, this is my life. You are now standing in the present, and that's a shift. Standing in the presence. So give yourself credit for doing that. Then, when you accept what is, you're moving forward even more. Acknowledging and accepting are are two different things, you know. Looking around and identifying what's different in your life since the loss isn't the same as accepting that difference. And and remember, acceptance in this case is it doesn't mean I'm okay with it and it's okay that it has occurred. It just means this loss has occurred. It means recognizing you can't change it nor the effects of it. So when you look around, you say, this is what my life is now. And you begin embracing that reality. And with that comes feelings. And with that comes embracing those feelings. Another sign of a shift you may recognize is that you actually are embracing the feelings and emotions you have. You may wake up one day, maybe you begin to have a grief attack, and that's what I call um, when suddenly you start to have strong emotions or thoughts or memories come at you, and you find yourself moving with it instead of against it. You find yourself that you allow yourself 
to feel that hurt, that sadness, that anger, that pain, whatever it is, instead of pushing it into the shadow or that holding cell where it feels much more comfortable, you allow yourself to experience it. When the feelings come and your first reaction is to stuff them, but you don't, instead you allow yourself to be present with them, that is a sign. That's a shift in grieving. You allow yourself to embrace them. That is a sign of change. And maybe it, that doesn't feel good, but you still continue to embrace. You know, what, what we embrace dissipates. Um, and I don't know, you know, a lot of times we don't like to do that um, because when things hurt, it's easy to try not to feel them. But for those of you that do embrace your feelings, you've learned that that it does help the feelings to subside. Now, you may not embrace them every time, and that's okay. Because when you do it a little bit, that is a shift, a sign of healing. Those are all concrete examples of some ways that hopefully you can identify with. Perhaps by me saying these out loud, you can examine today or past days and say, you know what, I didn't realize it, but that's, that's the way I was feeling. That's an experience that I had. That's how I reacted to someone. That's how I acted to something. All of that shows that it's a shift. It is a sign of healing, a shift in your grief. And the reason I wanted to, to bring that up is Sometimes we just need that encouragement, right? We need to know that we are moving forward, that we are not stuck. Because when we feel so much pain, we can feel stuck. And it's a good thing to know that just the slightest little change means that there is a shift, means that you are making movement, means that you are continuing down the path of your healing journey. Thank you for tuning in today. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you going down the 9-11 tribute with me. I think that was really important and um, folks deserve not to be forgotten. Remember to be gentle with yourselves. Be gentle with others. And as Lao Chu said, new beginnings are disguised as painful endings. See you next week.